You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 88 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you this week, Alison? I'm very well, thank you, Valerie. Very well indeed. I've that's been out good. walking with ProcrastiPup this morning and um, we both received some love, so that's nice. <laughs> love from whom? On the street? Well, he gets patted, you know. People like to fondle his fluffy ears. I didn't oh. get that. Nobody <laughs> fondles my ears. But, you know, we run into lots of people, so that's always a, a nice way to start the day when you're freelancing and you're going to spend the whole day by yourself. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Goodness. And you? What about you? What have I been doing? I'm putting the finishing touches on a feature article that I'm writing for a glossy magazine and I am missing one key bit of information. So I need oh. to scramble around for that today and hopefully, you know, the person I want to quote is going to get back to me. Don't you hate that when oh, yeah. you're right on the deadline? Waiting. Yeah, yeah. just waiting. Is there anything something? I can help you with? I could perhaps give you a quote. Sure, I'll I'll discuss it with you later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just bear that in mind. Just you know, put that at the back of your mind. Um, so, what have you got to talk to me about today? Anything exciting? Let's move on to the world of writing and blogging and publishing. Now, I believe you have an interesting link for us. Actually, we might start off with that one. Betting oh, I big. do. On literary newcomers. Yeah, this was an article that I saw in the Wall Street Journal and it was talking about the rise of an elite new club, which is the million dollar literary debut, Mm. Um, which of course is the, you know, you you often see, well, not often, not often enough if you ask me, Mm -hmm. Um, you'll see the big flashy headlines, you know, publishers pay $1 million for debut novel, et cetera, et cetera. I think the last one we had in Australia was Burial Rights by Hannah Kent, I think that was by mem- from memory the last really big splash we had on an advance, yes. and it's interesting because they actually talk about that that uh, novel in this particular article so because mm. of course the rights were sold into the US for Hannah Kent's um, uh, novel as well. But the, what they're actually doing here is breaking down how many copies of a book you actually have to sell. Yes, hardback specifically, um, because, of course, they're pricier than anything else, yes. um, how many you have to sell to actually make back the $1 million advance that mm. um, that they talk about and and what it takes for a, for a literary novel, because, um, of course, we're talking about quite a specific type of, of a read, mm. um, to actually sell that many. And they're, they're discussing the fact that they're using the $1 million advance as a marketing ploy. For um, sure. So you get the big splash and then everyone goes, wow, I've got to read that. Why yes. did I pay a million dollars? It's worth a million dollars. Yeah, and it's an interesting read and it's particularly interesting from our, from our perspective, I think, because we, if you may, you may recall that um, several episodes ago, and I can't exactly remember how many, we spoke to Rebecca James, who mm. is an Australian author who received a million dollars for mm. her, um, her debut YA novel. And yes. she was talking about like the burden, the curse and the burden of the million dollar advance and and how a million dollar advance is actually broken down because, of course, you don't just get a million dollars lobbed into your account. Um, yes. Often the million dollars is through selling into lots of different territories and it's all terribly complex. But if you haven't listened to that um, particular interview, it's worth listening to because I think that the you know, her her version of the curse and burden of the million dollar advance is, of course, that if you don't sell out your advance, mm. you're then on the back foot when it comes to the rest of your career. Yeah, for um, sure. And there have been a few stories like that. Like I've got a friend who shall remain nameless, who mm. um who basically 
the plan for that particular person is to get as big an advance as possible Mm. because that person's theory is that you'll never make any more than your advance on any book, particularly if you write literary fiction, which Mm. is an interesting way to go about it. Mm. But then I have other friends who would say that they would prefer a smaller advance, that they have a much better chance of earning out, Mm. and then they look better on the publisher's books, you know, come their next work. So. I've just talked a lot there. So what do you think about <laughs> all of that, Valerie, that I've just dropped in your lap? Goodness me. Well, certainly... Let's the, unpick that, shall we? <laughs> let's start unpicking that, yes. I mean, certainly many of the publishing houses are using it as a marketing ploy. You mm. know, when they send out the press release saying that so-and-so is getting a million-dollar advance or if it's Bill Clinton, a $10 million advance or whatever it is, because they know that it's going to get column inches throughout newspapers and magazines and media all over the place. But it's a high-risk strategy, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. yes. they may not recoup it at all. That that person, you know, the author, may go AWOL or they may turn out a not very good book. So it's something that I think they're playing with fire in a sense because as this article which is from the Wall Street Journal, and we'll put the link in the show notes, um, says that some books don't earn it out and and it's such a big risk for the publisher to take. And if they're going to take it, they're going to need to make sure they have a really strategic public relations campaign backing it every step of the way to make yeah. sure that risk has at least gets as much exposure as possible. So – I don't know what I would do if I was given the option of the massive advance and then the pressure or uh, a smaller advance and uh, and then earning it out. I suppose hmm, it would depend on your level of confidence at the time, wouldn't it? What would well, you prefer? Also, oh, I don't know. So, I mean, they're talking here about a, a, a book called City on, City on Fire, which is mm. by first-time novelist Garth Risk Hallberg, which came out last month amidst a flurry of publicity after receiving a nearly $2 million advance from Alfred A. Knopf, one of the largest ever for a literary debut, $2 million. And, you know, as Jane Friedman says, and she, of course, writes one of the blogs that we we look at regularly, Mm. they're basically betting on the book, establishing itself as an important book in the canon, and you're betting that this is going to be the most read book of the year. And, I, I mean, as an author... I mean, I don't know, $2 million dropping on you out of the sky. You're not going to say no, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Because technically we have to imagine that the book is written at least, like they're buying a completed manuscript here. Um, So it's done. But, oh, I don't know, the anxiety, I think the anxiety would be awful. Yeah, it would, I think. Um, Speaking of advances and whether the book does successfully or not, I don't know if you're watching the show that's currently on um, Foxtel or on – it might be on Friday. I really can't remember. It's called The Affair. Have you heard of it or have you watched oh, it? Oh, it's funny you say that because somebody w- – no, I haven't seen it, but somebody ha- was just recently recommending it to me. Right. Well, it is – the central character is a literary author who uh, has just released his book, if you're up to – where you know, if you're up to date, I'm not giving any way, away any spoilers. No spoilers, Val. And it's fascinating because there are a lot of writers in his world and publishers and publicists and that sort of thing. And it's interesting to get their take on you know the pressures that he's under as well. Not only in producing something that the publishers want to publish because there's a lot of pressure that way as well in terms of the the plot that he's decided to use, but also the pressures on the the promotion and the book tour, so to speak. So uh, it's it's a fantastic, fantastic television series, actually. So if, oh, okay, you, good. if you do get a chance to watch it, if anyone gets a chance to watch it, whether you're interested in writing or not, it's 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 absolutely worthwhile. Fantastic. And this is not a sponsored podcast. No, this is not sponsored. <laughs> I just love it. But let's move on to another link that you have for us called Writing for Love or Money. Well, I guess this kind of ties in very nicely with our previous conversation because uh, this particular post uh, by Brunonia Barry appeared on Writer Unboxed Mm. um, a little while ago and she talks about sort of, you know, she had a very, very successful first novel, you know, which was bought, she self-published it and then it was picked up in a very big deal and it came with a four-book contract, you know, which is a massive thing for any author. 
She ended up, you know, with a six-week book tour that turned into almost six months on the road. There were 30 foreign translations. Like we're talking about a successful book in anybody's terms. She managed to get the second book sort of out and that was all great. And then then she hit the wall with the third book Mm. because she had sold it to the publisher over a conversation on a vague premise that she was, you know, liking the idea of, the publisher ran with it, got really excited. Mm. And so she's under pressure at this point to produce this book. And, of course, you know, the first two have done really well and so she needs to produce a book that is going to live up to the expectations of that. Um, And she missed the deadline for that third book by almost two years. Good Lord. I know, you know, she had a few big sort of life changes in that time and all that sort of stuff. She, but, but she basically got depressed. She hit, to, you know, depression and um, she felt she couldn't write anymore. She was under this pressure to, you know, produce. And uh, anyway, it all went horribly wrong in a whole lot of lawsuits and things like that. Mm. And then in the meantime, she started writing something else um, just for herself. And of course, that is the book. Mm. that is now coming out with a different publisher as her third book and she talks about the fact of, you know, she's basically weighing up this notion of where your passion and your love of writing becomes your livelihood and then all of a sudden, you know, the joy is gone. Um, So it's a a really interesting post I think that is well worth reading, you know, no matter where you are in your uh, writing or publishing journey because it's something that, you know, I, I think it becomes a bit of like, you know, people tend to get a bit of a first world problems vibe about this stuff because, you know, mm. she's she's had this fantastic success and she's yes. published and she's over the line and, you know, what she got to complain about. Mm. Well, I think it's really important to remember that, that you know, getting published is one set of stresses and pressures. Staying published, mm. you know, if it's going to become your livelihood is, is a completely different set and it's, yes. you know, they're, they're different. Um, but doesn't make them not equally uh, equally valid. So I think really worth having a read if you know depending on where you are. Um, yes. And it's on Writer Unboxed. It's called Writing for Love or Money, and we'll put the link in the show notes. And an um, easy way to find the show notes if people want is just go to so you want to be a writer dot com dot au. Mm. But I thought what you said was interesting. What she said was particularly interesting because. Uh, I think that some people think that if you are doing it for your livelihood, suddenly it's a misery, but that's mm. not necessarily the case. No. It may not give you as much uh, creative fulfilment as when you're just writing for no reason. But I think that people think it's an either or approach. And at, I know you don't because you adopt a really pragmatic approach to your writing, mm. um, but a lot of people think it's either or. And I think that if you can work out a combination of writing stuff for pure love, but mm. also at the same time writing stuff because it's your livelihood and you get paid for it and that you may love it or you may, you know, not think it's the best thing in the world, but it's it, you still don't hate it because you're, you're, you're getting paid to do something that essentially is what you want to do. You're not being asked to dig ditches. Mm. Um, I think that it can work really – those two things can work really well in tandem. Well, they can because the I think that the writing, the bread and butter writing – it helps to take the pressure off those long hours. You know, I, I spoke to someone recently who was, you know, just wanted to write full time. They just wanted mm-hmm. to work on their on their novel full time. And I, I just I said to them, look, to be perfectly honest with you, I think that that's actually a recipe for disaster mm-hmm. in many ways because mm-hmm. that's a lot of hours to yes. fill and the pressure of filling those hours with something that's going to be creative and wonderful and stuff is is actually difficult and I think if you just come to it one hour a day Mm. with no sort of you know like it's like I'm just going to try and get 500 words down or something like that it's Mm. not those long hours of I must be writing I should be I should be writing I'm sitting here staring at the wall and I'm not writing I'm not writing you know what I mean (laughs) um so you know take the pressure off yourself and go and sort of metaphorically dig ditches if you can (laughs) personally I reckon (laughs) okay well let's move on to our next link which uh, was sent to us and it's really cute. It's a hotel in Tokyo called Book and Bed. So uh, if you're in Tokyo or you're going to go to Tokyo and you like books, a book and bed is described as an accommodation bookshop. <laughs> oh. And uh, yeah, now it's it's kind of cute because the English translation of what Book and Bed does 
isn't exactly quite spot on and it's a little bit confusing. But Mm. from what I can gather, there are 30 beds there. It's like a hostel. There are 30 Mm. beds there and you, but there are shared toilets and bathrooms, but there are many, many, many books so that you can, you know, go reach for a book to help you go to sleep. There's lots of book motifs throughout. There's lots and lots of shelves with books. Books even hang from the ceiling. Interestingly Mm. though, the, you can't buy any of the books. So it's like being in a library, I suppose, and mm. going to bed in a library. So With it's, other people. Also with other people because it's, it is. It's like a It's hostel. all very open. <laughs> it's it like little book open. cubby houses, aren't they? They're yes. Cute. So you go into your little cubby hole, but you're next to somebody else in their own cubby hole as well, and uh, you can read yourself to sleep. So we'll put the link in the show notes, but it's bookinbedtokyo.com, and you can have a look at it. It's very, very compact. There's lots of pictures. But it reminds me of uh, the Library Hotel in New York, which is um, a similar concept, except you actually do have your own rooms. It's not it's not a hostel. It's a lovely hotel, and every floor has a different theme, or every room has has a different theme. So one room might be erotica, one room might be crime, one room. The room I stayed in was law. Of all law, yes, so legal the, books. You didn't choose the erotica room then, <laughs> did Valerie? You surprised me. <laughs> and when you come in reception, where the uh, where the reception is, the the entire wall behind them is those library catalog drawers. Oh, so the the theme is pervade, pervades throughout. So the so if you're in the law room, as I was, there's just it's full of books about lawyers and legal things you know fiction mainly fiction obviously in the theory in the erotica room this it's full of erotica books um but yeah it's it's kind of cute that they have these sorts of uh hotels around the world so if you're going to tokyo this is not a sponsored post <laughs> we just came i guess the law it. room would be good for going to sleep because really <laughs> <laughs> no but it's got things like you know john grisham the firm and stuff like that it's not oh, actually I legal. You meant it was like law textbooks no no it's not legal. <laughs> I was going to say not, that it put me to it's sleep. It's not acts of parliament or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, fun! Oh, you know, it's bad. like to kill a mockingbird oh, <laughs> because okay. Atticus was a lawyer. Well, so, something else, uh, another link that we have that I found interesting, which was in Harvard Business Review, and it's called "I'm a Female Author." So, why did I want a man to narrate my audiobook? Interesting. Interesting. It got me intrigued already, the headline. Basically, it's by Whit Johnson who talks about the fact that she has a book called Dare, Dream, Do. And uh, it's, you know, she she needed to get the Audible narrator, the the narrator from Audible to to narrate her book. Mm. Um, Actually, her... To write the second, second book. book. Yeah, it's a business book. That's Disrupt right. yourself, putting the power of disruptive innovation to work. Yes. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that her knee-jerk reaction was to choose a man. And because mm-hmm. e- even though she's all about female empowerment, because she's um, with, you know, she co-founded 40 Women Over 40 to Watch. She co-founded the Springboard Fund, which is to invest in women-led businesses. And yet she wanted her book to be narrated by a man. And that is because research suggests that both men and women tend to trust male voices more particularly mm-hmm. deep mm-hmm. authoritative ones. And even when we're rating female voices, we tend to prefer low-pitched ones, which, mm-hmm. you know, uh, explains a lot about why Sandra Stully is, <laughs> has had such a successful career as a newsreader because <laughs> she has that low kind of tone. Yes. So, yeah, what do you think of that, particularly for a book that is, you know, supposed to be, well, that's by such a, feminist woman really mm, I don't know what to think about that I think well okay so let's let's look at this from my perspective I've got a series written by A.L. Tate which features a lot of boys and is ostensibly marketed at boys even though it's for girls as well mm. would I get a male or female to narrate it I would get a male to narrate it yes but that's because your protagonist is 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 a boy. She's writing a business book. Um, it doesn't say that it's aimed at ma- like it's not particularly aimed at 
women or men or anyone in particular, is it? doesn't say. Mm-hmm. Although she does focus on women-led businesses. Oh, that's a tough call, I think. Mm. Um, I, pro- I probably would. I, I think my knee-jerk response would also be to choose a man. And I noticed that it's interesting at the end there that she has – she went. She sort of went. Took a step back and actually went with a woman narrator in the end, mm. um, which is interesting. Um, why does it matter? It's interesting, isn't it? That we that it does though. We like mm. we do actually respond differently to to different voices, don't we? Yes, definitely, definitely. If I was choosing someone to narrate my book, I think I would choose a woman. But I would definitely choose a woman who spoke with lower tones. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, you would. Mm. Well, it's and it comes down to, I guess, um, well, a couple of reasons too. So higher voices are harder to hear when you're older. So if any of your read- any of your listeners are older, you want that sort of lower voice. Mm. But it also, it's just, yeah, like if, it, if someone's going to be narrating an entire book at me, I, I want the voice to be pleasant to listen to. So whichever yes. way it goes, it just needs to be, you know, and and it and I have to agree that I do think that lower toned women's voices they're just more pleasant to listen to. Yeah, I know somebody who will not have women on their podcast if they have a oh. high voice. Really? Yep. That's a bit mean. <laughs> I don't think I, I don't think I've ever thought I'm not having you on my podcast because of your voice. I think that's kind of I mean people's voices are what they are. We should be listening to what they're saying. Um, particularly in an interview situation, like narrating a book is a slightly different thing because they're reading, it's an actor reading someone else's words. But when it comes to a podcast, like when it comes to a podcast interview, people are what they are. And I, I think that's discriminatory. (laughs) I'm going to start doing like this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, anyway, let's move on. Let's move on before it all goes horribly wrong. Exactly. To, uh, we have a giveaway for you. We have a giveaway for all our, la- our listeners and I thought that this was timely because Spectre, you know, the new James Bond movie with mm-hmm. the lovely Daniel Craig is yeah. in cinemas at the moment. Have you seen it yet? No, I have not. I have not seen it yet. I haven't seen a Bond movie for a long time. Really? I fell out, I fell out at about Pierce Brosnan, I think. Oh, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know you'd why. come back for Daniel Craig, especially Casino Somebody Royale. Somebody did tell me that this particular one was very, very good. Yes, so, I, yeah. I'm very keen. But anyway, obviously uh, James Bond is the brainchild of Ian Fleming who wrote many, many, many James Bond books and made him famous. And it spawned the 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 many, many movies featuring a whole range of different actors mm-hmm. as James Bond. But we have a book giveaway this week and it's called The Man with the Golden Typewriter. And it's actually by Fergus Fleming, who is Ian Fleming's nephew. Now, Fergus Fleming is a non-fiction author and he's compiled his uncle's letters uh, from everyone ranging from publishers and agents, his wife, um, fellow authors like Somerset Maugham and other people of his vintage. And it's a great little book that um, uh, that basically compiles his correspondence. And you can often oh. get a real insight into people by their correspondence because obviously back in, in Fleming's day there was no email, so much of his correspondence was done by letter. So if you're interested in winning a copy of The Man with the Golden Typewriter, uh, entries close Monday the 14th of December 2015. So just go to writerscentre.com.au slash win, W-I-N, writerscentre.com.au slash win. But of course, sorry. I was just going to say, I think it's one of the really sad things about the modern era and and digital kind of communication is that the, we're not going to have that stuff anymore. We won't have letters. those letters to find and those yes. handwritten notes and, you know, we'll, there'll be like a word, there'll be a Scrivener file, well, that'll be awesome, yeah, and a, right. you know, or a Word document, but there won't be that, you know, that sort of tangible thing that showed us behind the scenes. And people people are different when they 
correspond via email than than if they actually write a letter. It's quite oh, a different very. form of communication. So I feel that, you know, future generations are going to miss out on this generation of authors because I just don't think that that stuff's going to be there. Yeah, that's right. That's mm. absolutely right. Okay. Um, I'm finished but, now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, good. Do you write letters still? Uh, no, I don't. I'm encouraging mm. my children to do it because I just find it so entertaining to read their letters. But <laughs> I, um, I don't. I don't actually write letters anymore. I send. I think what I do still do, and this makes me sort of really old school. Mm. I do send Christmas cards. Oh yes, but not. At, people think I'm mad because <laughs> you know I get those crazy dancing email oh, ones. Yes, yes. Which not, I mean, it's not the same. I, I just feel like there's. You know, it, it's so imper- – it remains impersonal, you know, yeah. the dancing email. And I think um, little kids, you know, who these days, like maybe even your kids, they they might actually grow up thinking that letters – because they never write letters to, you know, their friends and they they or anything like that, that letters only ever go to Santa because you can't email Santa. No, you can't. I actually, I actually went down and posted Mister Eight's Santa letter yesterday. Oh, cute! Having photocopied it first for my <laughs> for my file. Oh, cute! <laughs> it's so cute. He wants a guinea pig, which oh, wow. he's not going to get. <laughs> oh, okay. He was explaining to he was explaining to my husband that he could just keep them in his bedroom because that way the dog won't eat them. And I was like, yeah, no, what can happen? <laughs> All right, let's move on to our writing book this week. Our writing book this week. <laughs> what have you got for us, Sally? It's cute. I can't remember where I bought this. No, I got it from Dimmicks. Um, uh, it's called Ad Nauseam. It's by Lorna, Romis, Lorna Robinson. And it's called Ad Nauseam, a miscellany of Latin words and phrases. Heavens. <laughs> that sounds like an absolute humdinger what can i say it is a humdinger because you know there are so many phrases in the english language that come from latin or really that are latin like bona fide which is in Mm. good faith you know we and the the dead poet society made famous the um phrase carpe diem which is pluck the day actually not seize the day pluck it yes it's like that it's it's a phrase that i'm sure it are tattooed is tattooed on many people's um, arms and, and various body parts. But also vestibule, it mm-hmm. comes from vestibulum, which is forecourt. Atrium was the uh, Latin word for hall and uh, forum. It was the word for marketplace. But mm. it's just full of other Latin words as well, which are really fascinating because I'm particularly fascinated because I did – I studied Latin at school, and what um, uh, you surprised me, Valerie. We would never have picked your obsession with dying and dead languages, <laughs> ever. I'm sure that all of our listeners are giggling to themselves at this point. <laughs> well, I hope they are anyway. Now, listen. While we're on the subject of that, though, I would like yes. to share a post with you that I discovered during yes. my trawling through social media, and it is called. It was uh, put on uh, up on Flavor Wire, which is one of those, you know all comers kind of websites and it's called 25 books guaranteed to make you a better writer and Mm. I have to say that it's not a bad list because it it's sort of like the usual suspects are there so bird uh, by Bird, by Anne Lamott, etc. Stephen King's on writing. But mm. there are actually some interesting and surprising choices in there as well, um, like one called The Art of Recklessness, mm. Poetry as Assertive Force and Contradiction by Dean Young. Um, you know, just some interesting things that, that uh, some books that people uh, possibly may not have come across before um, with good reasons as to why you should read them, why they should be on your um, on your bookshelf. So if you are looking for some new uh, writing books that do not involve Latin. Um, <laughs> what Alison's trying to say is that my pick was really bad, and you should go to. No, no, no. Yours is awesome, and I, I, I love the fact that you that that you bring us back to the roots of our language on a regular basis. <laughs> However, like there's a book here called "What It Is," which is described as an ecstatic experience. Mm. A unique blend of extravagant cartoon and collage, um, which, which is it's kind of like a memoir slash creativity manual. So, um, oh, wow. you know, like I'm just suggesting that maybe like 
it, people who are sort of like hoping to branch out a little in their writing from Latin <laughs> might like to, <laughs> like to try one of the or two of the books on this list. All right, we'll put the link in the show notes. And it on will. that note, uh, <laughs> why don't you tell us who our writer in residence is this week? Well, our writer in residence today is Ellie Marnie, who is not only a terrific um, Australian YA author, but she's been quite instrumental in the Love Oz YA movement, which is it began on Twitter with a hashtag and has now sort of branched out into um, into other things. And, and I actually saw today that uh, one of the publishing companies, I think it's HarperCollins, is actually going to be producing a Love Oz YA anthology featuring 10 Australian YA authors next year. Um, and Ellie has also set up a, a new Love Oz YA book club, which is specifically, obviously, about, you know, reading Australian YA authors, which I think is terrific. So we talked about all of those things and her writing in our, in, in our interview, and um, I hope you enjoy. Ellie Marnie's YA novel, Every Breath, was one of only two Australian novels on the 2015 list of most borrowed YA library books. The second novel in the series, Every Word, won the 2015 Sisters in Crime David Award for Best Young Adult Novel. Ellie recently started a new online book club to help promote Australian YA fiction, and she's here to talk to us today about that, about YA fiction, and about all the exciting things about life in general. So, hello, Ellie, and welcome to our podcast. (laughs) Hi, Alison. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's talk first about your Every Series, which is a trilogy. How did you come to write crime fiction in the first place? Um, well, I won the uh, is in Crime Australia uh, 2010 Scarlet Stiletto Award, and that was an adult short story prize for women crime writers, hmm. um, which was fantastic. And before that, I'd experimented with other genres, so I've written in science fiction and literary fiction and um, horror and a few other different things. But um, I seem to be having a bit of success with crime because uh, I did pretty well in another in another uh, category for of the Scarlet Stiletto Awards the previous year. Mm. So I thought, okay, well, um, I'm, I'm, you know, doing okay in crime. I seem to have a bit of a knack for it. And also I'd been into a lot of high school libraries around that time and because um, I'm a high school teacher and I had a bit of a look on the shelves and I realised that there was a bit of a gap on library shelves um, as far as YA crime goes. There's a lot of adult um, uh, fiction, crime fiction on high school library shelves but not much in the way of YA crime. So I thought, okay, um, I just kind of made a little note of that in my brain and then when it came to a point where I was thinking I might write a novel, I knew I was going to write a YA novel because it's always been my first love. So um, then I thought, okay, well, I could write YA crime. That seems to, you know, strike a chord. So that's what I did. I started with every breath. And filled the gap on the, on the library shelves, didn't <laughs> <laughs> I think it worked okay. So are there actually limitations for writing crime for a YA audience? Like, you know, do you have to... Bear the age of your readers in mind and and to what degree and in what areas? Um, Look, yeah, I think you do to some extent. Um, There's there's varying opinions about how much you have to self-censor for a YA audience. I mean, my feeling is that uh, you have to be a bit bit more aware of your language and a bit more aware of um, how much is too much in terms of violence and gore and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I think YA authors generally are fairly aware of their audience in that way. Um, but look, to be honest, I think high school students, or teenagers in general, are um, not, not as afraid of, of delving into, into crime as, as most people might think. I mean, they're actually kind of a bit fascinated with, with um, murder and death and um, all of those kind of the mysteries of, of why people do the things that they do, you know, why mm. people make bad choices. I mean, mm. teenagers are at that stage in their life where they're, they're figuring out their, out their own life choices. So for them, it's, it's, it's kind of very intriguing anyway. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you, look, you do have to be aware of it, um, but I wouldn't um, sit down and sort of think, oh, well, I have to limit myself too much because, um, you know, I'm, I'm only writing for teens. I, I, I'd write it first and then I'd go back and sort of think, oh, um, that might be a bit too much, or oh, okay. Um, maybe later in edits, I might sort of, I might pull back a little. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, most of the people that um, I've had response from have said that they enjoy having something that's a bit more realistic, a bit more gritty. And let's face it, I mean, there's a lot of teenagers out there watching Sherlock or watching Elementary and CSI mm-hmm. and all of those things are fairly engaged with, with mm-hmm. violent crime and, and gore and autopsy. So I don't think teenagers back away from that stuff all that much, really. All right, so you mentioned Sherlock and Elementary because, of course, there are very heavy Sherlockian overtones in the every series yes, in the case are. of the characters. <laughs> um, did you actually begin with the characters or with the plot when it came to, you know, writing the series? Uh, absolutely, the characters. Um, I always start with the characters. Mm. So I think when I decided I was going to write YA crime, um, I thought I wanted to write something that I found deeply affecting or deeply intriguing for myself. Because, you know, writing writing anything in long form, writing any kind of long work, you, you have to really commit to it. And mm-hmm. um, to kind of push through to the end of a long project like that, uh, you need to find something that you're really in love with. So, uh, I mean, Sherlock Holmes is, is a character that has intrigued lots of people, but I, I, I read all of the Conan Doyle canon when I was in my early teens and mm. and never really stopped being a bit infatuated, I think, with Sherlock. So mm. um, when I came to write crime, I thought, yeah, you know, that's something that I could, I could happily um, bang on about mm. for 335 <laughs> pages. <laughs> Fair enough. So do you tie yourself up in knots plotting out your novels or do you are you like we spoke to Michael Robotham for an earlier episode of our podcast and he you know revealed that he has no idea who done it <laughs> before he gets to the end which I just found so fascinating because you know he writes these intricately you know interwoven stories and yes. I thought how is that even possible but yeah, what do you do? What's your process as far as I, it goes? I am. I'm sorry. I'm also in the robot. Oh. <laughs> I don't. I don't plot very much at all. Oh wow! <laughs> I mean, I I kind of have a bit of an idea. Look, I I really get deeply into the characters, yeah. and I really uh, know them, you know, inside and out. By the time I start writing, generally, or I mean, you know, they develop too as you go along, obviously. Mm. But um, but I try to know the characters as well as I possibly can, so that they're you know, I have a, a really good idea of, of how they're going to jump if I put them in any kind of situation. Mm. Um, and then I just kind of make it up as I go along. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a bit of a pantser. So um, what, do you write yourself into corners? Like, do you find yourself, and I ask you this question. All oh, good, time. good, because yes. I wrote myself into a corner last night and I'm still sitting here thinking, how am I going to get out of it? <laughs> yes, that does happen to me quite frequently. <laughs> So what and do you do I, I in that I sense? I do a lot of I do a lot of backtracking and um, um, retrofitting. Uh, <laughs> it's like, oh, now I've written this. Oh, gee, I'm going to have to go back thirty pages now and insert X. Yeah, okay. <laughs> to make that it all work. Sense. And yeah. I mean, quite often I get to to somewhere about the two thirds or the three quarters of the way mark and think. Um, yeah, I really still, even at this stage, don't know how the story's going to end. Mm. Uh, I had that problem with all of the books. How am I going to end this novel? Or rather, how are the characters going to find their way out? I mean, that for me is, is mm. more of a question. Not so much how can I direct things, but you know, what would the characters do in this situation? What would they really do? And so for me, yeah, I'm kind of a bit character-led. So I, it's as much of a surprise to me as it is to the reader, I think, to figure out what they're actually going to, which way they're actually going to go at the end. You must have moments of humongous relief when it all comes together. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and also moments of sheer terror when I'm halfway through the writing thinking, I don't know how they're going to get out of this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Um, so what, what do you do, like when you say that, I know that the characters lead you through it, but what is it like I find, for example, if I'm in that situation, like I'm sitting here today thinking about my poor corner, mm-hmm. you know, captured person. Um, <laughs> like I tend to find that I need to walk a lot to sort of dislodge somehow the plot. Like what, what sorts of things do you do when you need to sort of try to, you know, push your way forward a bit. Yeah, look, you have to step back, I think, from it. I mean, walking is good. Mm-hmm. Um, I should I should do more walking, really. I should <laughs> get up and move around more often. But, <laughs> but quite quite often it's more 
something like, oh, now I've got to drive, you know. I mean, you do a lot of driving in the country. Yeah. I mean, I live out in a rural area, so I spend a lot of time in the car. So I do tend to work out a lot of plot um, issues mm. in the drive. Yep. Um, also, while I'm washing dishes. Oh, and, yes. You know, yes. doing housework or yeah. working out in the garden. Yeah. You know, when, I'm, when you're doing something um, kind of, Slightly boring and yeah. repetitive, and you don't have to put too much thought into it. Yeah. Although that makes me sound like a really bad driver, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> well, yes, but we won't go there. Yes. But, um, but yeah, look, I do. I do tend to um, find something that I can do that's that's not going to engage my brain too much, or I can just sit and listen to music or something mm. like that, and you know. Sometimes it'll resolve itself. Other times I really just have to sit myself down and with a piece of paper or a, and a big texture or a big piece of cardboard or something and actually map it out mm. how it's going to go. Mm. And then at that point I often have to go back and do a lot of rewriting because right. I might find a solution but it will involve some reorganisation of what came before. And so that would be probably be my next question. How many drafts do you think, you know, as a pantser, Yes. How more. many drafts would you say you do? Of more, your... <laughs> more and more, handless drafts. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, um, I probably do three or four initial drafts and mm. then probably another um, three or four edited drafts. Mm. And, I mean, I, I, the thing about it is that even though I'm a pencil, I kind of edit as I go. Yeah. Um, so, um yeah, I would say I'd do seven or eight drafts on average, and then mm. of course a lot of rereading and and fix wrappering along mm. the way. And I I think I was talking to some students the other day, and I was saying it's my first book, Every Breath. I think I read that book somewhere in the vicinity of like 150 mm. times before it went to print. And so, you've never looked at it since, have you? <laughs> <laughs> no, weirdly enough, I had to read it again as soon no. as I got the copy in my hand because it was like, oh, wow, it's a real book. Now I can read it like a book now. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. All right, so speaking of books, let's talk about your new online book club, which is the Love Oz YA book club. And Yay. it stemmed from the hashtag, Love Oz YA hashtag, which is designed <laughs> to promote Australian YA fiction. Now, did the whole thing come about because of the proliferation of US voices on that most borrowed library? books list for you? Like, is that where it came from? Um, you mean the inspiration for the book club or for Love For both, for the hashtag, for the whole sort of movement, because it really has become a bit of an online movement. And I'm interested, um, you know, to see it happening. And I think it's a fantastic thing that, you know, Australian YA voices are being, you know, yeah, promoted. promoted and yeah. advocated for. Yeah. yeah, look, I think that was the initial... Um, impetus for getting together, you know, authors, publishers, booksellers, librarians, all sort of saying, hey, um, you know what, Australian kids aren't really reading local writing, <laughs> local mm. YA writing, mm. um, because uh, there were other lists published by Alia uh, um, that were that were uh, predominantly Australian, you know, so like the adult fiction list, for instance, or the non-fiction list, I mean, there were a lot of adult titles um, that were Australian on that list. Um, but with YA, it was a it was a whole different ball game. It was mm. it was um, you know, two out of ten. So yes, there's a there's obviously a huge marketing budget involved in titles that come from overseas. Mm. And I think um, Marissa Pintado pointed out recently that um, for every one Australian YA title on the shelves, there's something like nine overseas buy-ins. So, wow. so we actually are kind of. Um, a very small voice in the market, really. And considering that our, our publishing industry is that, that much smaller, um, marketing budgets are smaller, it's just harder to get the dollars to promote. So mm. we figured, look, you know, it's time to take matters into our own hands. Mm. We, we better start pushing our own books and, and um, also as a way of developing the community of YA um, writers and and readers and, and publishers and, and so on. So... So people who love Australian YA got together to form that that um, community, Love mm. Australia, um, which has been fantastic. And the book club was, well, it was, you know, you gave me a great tip that people <laughs> love to read. People love to read. Um, and when, when they're given, you know, the opportunity to, um, to get together in a group, people love to read and then talk about the books afterwards. So, yeah. so that's why I set up 
the Love Osway Book Club because I thought, you know, I didn't think that we had anything else like that going and I thought it might be popular and, and it was. It was, um, I think we got something like 160 members in the first 24 hours. Wow, that's so, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was it was a bit overwhelming, actually. And you're now at, as of today, you're at 268 members, which is great. And I will put the link in the show notes to that Facebook group for people to join if you're interested in having a look at that. But the Thank thing you. I really love about it, and this is something that Valerie and I talk about regularly, is this notion of, you know, authors collaborating to help promote their the industry, their genre. You know, like I, I think it's important to realise that there's not, you know, yeah, yes, people, you know, like your book is competing with the next book or whatever, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a competitive industry because no. readers like the next thing. You know, they're always looking for what's the next thing I'm going to read, what am I going to read, what am I going to read. So I exactly. think if we, yeah, if there's, you know, if, if you get together with a group of authors and cross-promote, it, it helps everybody, which I think is brilliant. So I think your book club is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So um, as a YA author and also obviously you're a high school uh, teacher, so you are a regular visitor in schools. Would you Most say definitely. that? Sorry? Most definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say then, like, do you think it's challenging to engage teen audiences? Like, not only on the case of, in the case of you know reading, getting them to to read your books, etc., mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. also you know if as because you do author visits, so going out to speak to authors to kids in schools, um, is it difficult to kind of get a teen audience involved in what you're saying? Um, look, I, I mean, look, there's two parts, okay, so there's the, there's the teen reading thing, which everyone sort of says, oh, you know, it's really hard to get teenagers to read. Um, look, I tend to think that's true to a certain extent because, you know, um, as you're getting older and, and you're growing towards adulthood, you start to become interested in a, in a wide variety of things, you know, like, Mm. um, uh, phones and, um games and uh, extracurricular sports and and suddenly you've got a whole lot more homework and um you know there's other things like dating and oh you know um household responsibility i mean there's a million things that start Mm. to take up your time as you get older um so i can sort of see where people are coming from when they sort of say teenagers are hard to engage in reading but i do think that um that kids who start quite young as strong readers that even if they, um, if their level of reading drops off as as teenagers, it's something that they they come back to, you know. So so if you can continue to encourage and and provide motivation, you know, for for teenagers to read, if you keep throwing books at them basically mm. and saying, oh, you know, read this, you love this, and give them a recommendation from from a whole heap of different genres and particularly target their interests, you mm. know, because because I think you know a lot of people say, oh, you know. My kid was really loved reading when he was little, but uh, now he's older and um, he's he's stopped reading. You know, and I think, well, maybe you're just throwing the same books at them that you were throwing at them when they were nine. Mm-hmm. You know, but but now that they're fifteen, their taste might have changed and their interests have have broadened or changed. So you really need to to try a whole lot of different things to to find out what's really grabbing your attention. And I think if you can do that, they will continue to read. Mm-hmm. They will, and then after they've They've kind of gotten through the teenage years. They'll they'll maintain that that mm. reading habit. It's not something that goes away. If you if you fall in love with books as a small child, then I really think that's something that will stay with you forever. Um, and as far as engaging teen audiences when you're going out, I actually I actually love talking to teenagers because I think they're they're funny and they're engaging and and they always say something surprising. So um, and I work with teenagers. Um, you know, day to day, uh, I also live with teenagers because I've got a couple of teenagers living in my house right now, my sons, my two older sons. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually really like teenagers a lot. <laughs> and I think that when going out to speak to them, if you really like them and, um, and it's, and it's kind of obvious that you like chatting to them and getting on with them. And if you're not too scared of, of teenagers as a group, um, then I think they're actually, they're a fantastic audience. You know, they're really, really, um, like I said, they've got wide-ranging interests. So they, they will, they will um, ask you loads of different curious questions. And, and I find them, yeah, really pretty connected generally and really fun to talk to. So I don't ha- tend to have too many problems when I go out to schools and, um, and talk to teenagers in schools. Um, 
Yeah, and I guess, you know, being a teacher does help, um, knowing what it's like to interact with teenagers on a, on a daily basis does give yeah. you a bit of a leg up when it comes to presenting. Yeah, okay, well, because I know a lot of uh, people do find the whole notion of going to speak to a group of teenagers quite scary, so it's good yeah, to know that yeah. you're telling us they're still people, so that's nice to know. <laughs> a lot of parents find their teenagers, you know, like, oh, my God, this is a whole new person. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, they're, they're pretty good. Once you get to know them, they're, they're really nice. They go all right, <laughs> do they? Okay. Yeah, they go all right. All right, so... um. Are you conscious of trying to build a platform to help promote your books? Like, have you been encouraged by your publisher to do that? Yes, of course. I think it's something that every um, author has to do now. I, yeah. I don't think it's, um, it's something that you can sort of um, dip into or or just sort of say, oh, look, I, that's a kind of a commercial game. You know, I'm not going to get involved in it. I mean, that's really an, an integral part of, of being a writer now yeah. is, is learning to engage with, a, with the, the readership that's out there. And also, you know, I mean, it's kind of fun doing that. Yeah. Um, and, and it's also something that, um, I mean, it, the tools are all there. It's, it's very accessible now to, to communicate with readers, to communicate with booksellers and, and librarians, you know. I mean, librarians are great to talk to. Mm. And, and, yeah, I think, I think you're kind of missing out, actually, if you're um, not getting engaged and if you're not building a platform. So what are some of the things that you do? Like where do you tend to put your time as far as that stuff goes? Um, I have a website which is kind of like a hub, but mm-hmm. then I also do regular blog updates on mm-hmm. my blog. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I spend a lot of time on Twitter. <laughs> I have to confess. I mean, you know, Twitter is a real word medium and there are a lot of writers on Twitter. Yeah. It's really fun, <laughs> um, isn't it? It is. It's really good fun. You know, I've gotten actually, I've, uh, particularly because I'm a rural writer and I live a long way out of town. So for me, Twitter has been a real lifeline because it's it's connected me with the larger writing community in a way that I would never have had access to otherwise. Yeah, you know what I, I mean? agree I, with I don't that. get to so many events and things like that. So it's really important to have that um, that access to the larger writing community. Um, I'm also on Instagram and Pinterest. They're, they're kind of platforms that I'm just starting to um, branch into, mm-hmm. but um, I like it a lot, you know. I yeah. like taking photos, so Instagram's fun. And Pinterest, Pinterest is some, something that I think I could spend an awful lot of time on <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if I let myself. I know, that's but, a trouble. Uh, at the moment, I'm just, I'm just limiting myself to a certain amount of time each day, otherwise it could turn into an obsession. I, I think. think that's the, probably the key to the whole thing. All right, so um, just to finish up for today, uh, we yeah. always ask our uh, interviewees um, mm-hmm. for their top three tips for writers. So what would you say were your top three tips for YA writers? Top three tips for YA writers. Um, okay, well then, my first tip would be read in YA. Mm. You know, I mean, that sounds really obvious, but a lot of people try writing in the genre, but in the category, I should say, mm. before they um, have had um, a, a really uh, good chance to to get stuck into what's already existing mm. in the category, mm. and and so. So it's it's really important for people to be a little bit up with what's going on in the category and and who you know get to know a few of the people who are writing in the different genres within the category. Um, so yeah, look, that's really important. Read lots of YA if you want to write in YA. Mm. Um, I would also say get a platform so you can communicate with your readers. You know whether that platform is on Twitter, whether it's on Facebook or. Um, um, you know, something else with Instagram, find something that makes you feel comfortable. Yep. And and then you can branch out from there. Yep. And of co- and the other thing is, um, like I mean, this is just a tip for people who are who are already getting into the writing, but you know, you have to you have to take a kind of a workmanlike approach. I mean, this is a general writing tip, I guess. Um, I'm I'm of the Stephen King school of writing, you know, which is just bum on seat, uh, just work mm. and don't get up until you're finished mm. and finish what you start, you know, mm. like like a bricklayer or a plumber. You know, yeah. I've started a job and now I've got to complete it. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, I'm just not one of those people that kind of waits for the muse to strike or something. I think you have to be a bit more professional than that. I think you have to just knuckle down and work your way through that crappy first draft and then 
once you've got it all out, then you can go back and Fix and, it. and edit and, and make it pretty. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Ellie. It's been really interesting and I'm sure our listeners have probably um, got a lot of fantastic tips and things like that to uh, to take away with them this week. So thank you very much and good luck with the next thing. Thank you very much for having me, Alison. And um, yeah, um, have a great day. Thanks. Wow, that's wonderful. I am going to read some of Ellie's stuff. You know, I have to admit that I haven't read a lot of YA, but I started doing it after talking to Nicole Hayes and just absolutely loving her book. And um, I think I'm going to get into it this summer. Well, uh, um, her books are fantastic. I've read a couple of them. Um, and obviously there's, there's sort of like a strong Sherlock Holmesian vibe to to them, but it's interesting too because the the first book that was chosen for the you know the Love Ozwaye Book Club, um, and I'm just trying to think of the actual name of it because I've had a complete mental blank. <laughs> the Illuminae, I think it is, mm-hmm. um, was has just been picked up as a um, as a uh, movie. The it's the rights have been optioned yes, by right. Brad Pitt, yes. and you know, like it's a really a really big deal and mm. so it's and apparently uh the the book is selling gangbusters i mean that's only just recently come out in october mm. and it's um it's just gone nuts so i think it's fantastic it's a real success story um so you know if you're looking for a one to start with that might be a good one too brilliant all right let's move on to our app pick for the week this one's a little bit different it's got nothing to do with writing, but oh. it's useful for okay. freelance writers or for any writers, I suppose. Uh, and I've just started using it. It's called. It's not. It's a bit out of the box. If you thought my Latin was, uh, no, no. was I, not, nothing. Nothing you do will ever surprise me. Well, okay. this is an it, app which you can get from the App Store uh, for iPhone and Android, I believe, uh, and it's called Vehicle Log. Okay. <laughs> and it's ATO compliant, which means it's compliant with the Australian Tax o- Taxation Office. But basically, I've realised that it's been more than five years since, or it's been around five years since I did my last logbook for my vehicle. And you need to do a fresh one every five years. And it's time that I did one. But I thought, I don't want to do the old paper and pen thing. I had to carry around this stupid logbook in my car with a pen and write everything down all the time. Surely there must be an app for your phone. And, of course, there is. I put a call out on uh, Facebook to ask for some suggestions and I people came back with uh, vehicle log the vehicle log it's called <laughs> it's just pretty straightforward when it yeah. comes to branding yep. exactly so what you do obviously is you note down where your trips are that are for business and which ones that are personal and you can claim as a deduction the proportion that is business and i think that's worthwhile particularly if you travel a lot so i think you're absolutely right and very very good for freelance writers you might yes. be driving to and from jobs all the time and i should probably have it myself and yes i can't believe i've never come across it before there you go thanks for that val let's move on to our working writers tip this week this comes from emma and emma has said that uh, her question is in regards to branding she says i started my career as a journalist under my maiden name and branded myself as a journalist and writer however i decided journalism wasn't for me and now work in not-for-profit fundraising and marketing under my married name I currently write creatively and use social media under my maiden name, but Mm -hmm. I want to establish myself as a marketer for -for not-for-profit specialist under my married name. (laughs) Do you have any advice for keeping them separate or do I acknowledge I am in fact the same person? The audiences in theory shouldn't cross over, but you never know. And, And Emma says, you know, thanks for the podcast. So what do you think, Al? Oh, I'm confused. I know it is confusing. And I have to say that I would find it confusing to run two separate yeah. accounts even though the subject matter might, might be different. I, I I would choose one and go with that. Yep. Probably the one that you – if you're wanting to establish yourself as a uh, writer, then I would probably choose that name and continue on with that. Mm. Um I think 
I don't know. What do you think, Val? Like my, I, I found it a bit sort of. Yeah, it's very, very confusing. And I think therein lies the problem. Mm. I think that the main thing is that if you want to establish yourself as a marketer for not not for profits, and which you're doing under your married name, then go for your life. But you want to do your creative stuff um, under your maiden name. Okay, go for your life. But that is too lots of work. And for me, that's reason enough. If you want to do it effectively, it really is too lots of full-on work and mm. if you want to if for me you would just consolidate because I, I just couldn't be bothered doing two lots of different types of work I think that I would okay this is probably what I would do I think that I would can can keep my married name marketing person mm. going on LinkedIn I would keep all of that stuff you know like I would was focus on the not-for-profit and all that sort of stuff on my LinkedIn because you know you've got to keep your your CV etc up to date on that but I think that if I was going to then do social media work anywhere else that and and I'm trying to and I was trying to establish a writing name, then I would go with that everywhere else. Mm. That still is too lots of work. Well, it depends on. I mean, I don't know. It depends on how much LinkedIn action you're going to like. If if you think to if if I was able to think to myself, right, I'm going to be doing. You know, this is me with my career hat on, being a social marketer, whatever. Mm. All that goes on LinkedIn. Everything else is on somewhere else yeah sure yeah I think it it just boils down to your goals and how active you're going to be in them if you're just using your married name for you know the not-for-profit marketing because that's just what you happen to use and you're not going to be putting yourself out there as a thought leader making appearances doing keynote speeches running Mm. seminars if you're not going to do all that sort of thing and you're just using your married name just because that's what people are used to then just do that yeah fine Mm. but if you are going to get out there for both of those things for the creative stuff and the marketing stuff if you're going to choose one of those names and choose one because then you're just split personalities too weird Mm. so it depends on how active you're going to be and how much you're going to put yourself out there in my opinion and I, yeah, and I guess the other thing to think about too is is what's going to like where's your main focus actually going to be? Mm. Because you know, like if if it's if it's raising you if raising your profile, you know, for your actual day job for your work is important to you, then why not just do everything under that name and mm. then you know you branch out. And I there don't... are many people who are lawyers, who are doctors, who have made who have you know uh, leaders in their industry who then go write a novel under the same name and it's mm. okay. Mm. It's, it's, I think you're diluting it potentially if you – diluting your efforts and confusing people potentially mm. if you're doing both. But, mm. yeah, it depends on how much effort you want to put in both – in two lots Into of both, yeah, yeah. Into, into each section of your life. So we hope that's useful. Was that useful? <laughs> <laughs> All right, that brings us to the end of our episode this week. What are you going to be up to until we speak again? Well, I'm actually, I'm kind of excited because I found out this week that the Mapmaker Chronicles have been added to the New South Wales Premier's Readers Challenge Yay. list, which is really exciting. Yes. I, I, it's such an honour. Like, I really feel like it's, um, you know, like it's on the list with some pretty great books. So mm. I, I'm very excited to be to be part of that. Um, so I'm kind of cheering about that. And I am also just, you know, writing all the things. As usual. Yes. Because that's what I do. Absolutely. <laughs> I just write all the things <laughs> all the time. Oh, oh. goodness me. <laughs> Fair enough. I need to change the record somewhere along the way. Don't I? Every time you ask me that, I'm like, what are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm writing all the things. Yes. That's how I roll. Um, what about you, Valerie? What will you be doing? Well. Maybe you're doing something more interesting. Uh, a couple of different things. One, I am spending a lot of time putting the finishing touches on a whole new range of courses. Woo-hoo. Yeah, at the Australian Writers Centre, including, including your build your author platform. Yes, which is, which is very exciting. It's brilliant, yeah. very exciting. Yeah. Soon to be released, and if you want to register your interest in order to get a special offer only available to people who register their interest for their mm. pre-launch, go to writerscentre.com.au/platform. Uh, but apart from doing that from a work point of view, I need to get on to my Christmas shopping. Oh, I, do you know, I, I'm nearly finished. 
Oh no! How smug am I? I'm yeah, so that's smug. smug. That's well, that's you know when you've got I haven't started when you've got two little boys, you know, and Santa letters to mm. be doing. You, you know, you got to get onto it. Otherwise, you it's very, very, very busy on the Christmas Eve. <laughs> well, one thing has made it very easy for me. I'm buying multiple trilogy packs of the Matt Maker Chronicles Woo-hoo! for anyone everybody, in that everybody age. Everybody <laughs> should buy multiple trilogy packs. It's the perfect gift for any child <laughs> aged nine to thirteen. Okay. Isn't there Every- a bunch? Is isn't there a deal on with Booktopia? Uh, I think um, was running a fabulous bundle deal of of the three books at a discounted price, and yes. I will put the link in the show notes. I will just be on to help Booktopia. you with your yes. Thank you. Uh, Christmas shopping. Thank you. Uh, but if you have a second, well, 30 seconds to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, it really helps us in our rankings and to keep us up there with iTunes so that more people discover the podcast. Uh, but thank you so much to everyone who's given us a shout out on social media. We really appreciate it. Uh, where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontate.com. You will find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, and you will find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And you'll find me everywhere at Valerie Koo. So do, you know, tweet us and uh, uh, let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. But until next week, thanks so much and we'll talk to you then. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.